Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word. We ask that you would move upon us even now, that you would shape us with your truth and the beauty of who you are and your wisdom and your love shining through these pages. Lord, we ask that you would take our little ones as we dismiss, that we, we, you would work in their hearts, that you would shape them by their teachers and by your word being taught so faithfully. Lord, we ask that you would save them and bless them as they go. In Jesus' name, amen. The children may be dismissed. Hey friends, good to be together with you this morning. Uh, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a privilege for me to, to get to preach God's word again to you. We're kind of wrapping up our series on James. If you haven't been with us, if you're new this morning, we're just coming to the end of chapter 5 in the, the book of James. If you want to catch up or if you missed some of the, of the sermons on James, you can, you can find those online or, or on our app. But, uh, but here we go. Uh, next week will be the last week in James, and it, it is, uh, I'm excited to have God speak to us through his, through his written word this morning. Um, last week, Ben covered James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, where we hear James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, of, mind you, the risen Lord Jesus, uh, issue, we hear him issue a warning to the unrighteous rich of the world who exploit the poor and hoard resources that, that God has given them. So he issues this warning to, to those out there. Um, they will face judgment in what James refers to as really incredible language here, the day of slaughter. But as Ben pointed out, this message to the world was one that was really for the church. It was to the world, but for the church. And now in James 5, 7 through 12, the passage Pastor Craig just read for you, James speaks directly again to these Christians. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers. Okay, we're talking to these Christians near Jerusalem again. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Here he's turning his attention back to the church. He makes explicit the subject that was obvious but implicit in the first six verses of the chapter. That is, the coming of the Lord. In our passage, the coming of the Lord, verse 7, is mentioned in several ways. It's clearly the main subject of this passage. In verse 8, 
It's described as at hand or near, imminent. In verse 9, we ought not to grumble against one another because, quote, behold, the judge is standing at the door. The final reference to the coming of the Lord is present in a veiled sense in verse 12. We see it kind of as, as in, a, in shadow form there. James calls us to integrity of speech. Look at, listen to the language that you may not fall under condemnation. This surely refers to the judgment that the Lord will mete out to those servants who have not been faithful in their master's physical absence. Now, this is an interesting topic. What does the return of our Lord and Master mean for us, the church? It's actually a core teaching of Christianity that Jesus will indeed return, and that means many things for us. It's been a core teaching since the beginning. He will come again to judge the living and the dead is the way one of the earliest Christian creeds have stated this. Jesus likens this aspect of the coming kingdom to a master leaving servants in charge of an estate On the one hand, the servants are to stay awake because just in case an intruder or a thief comes in, they need to be on guard and ready. On the other hand, they need to stay alert so that when the master does return, they can be ready to welcome the master back to his estate and present to him all that he had entrusted to their care. So Jesus uses this analogy of of a servant and a master and the servant overseeing the the belongings and the possessions and the estate of the master while the master is away. But in these parables, the master always returns. And that's what Jesus was teaching. So since Christianity's earliest days, the the return of Jesus has been not only affirmed, but celebrated. My question is this, as I've been thinking about this, this teaching and this passage this week. Here's the question. What difference does the promise of the return of Jesus make in your life? I know it will make a difference then when it happens, but what difference does it make in your life right now? Whether it's elementary school or high school or heading off to UW, right? Uh, what, What difference does it make right now in your profession, in your family, in your community? under temptation, under affliction. What real-time difference does the promise that Jesus as the master of the estate will return, what difference does that make? Let me put it another way. If If the Bible didn't teach the return of the Son of God from heaven, how would your life right now look different Would your life right now look different if the Bible didn't teach that Jesus will one day return in glory and in power? I'm challenged by this question personally. Uh, I I have to ask, I have to do some self kind of assessment and inventory. How, how How would my emotional response to difficulty look differently if I deeply, profoundly, believed in the imminence of the return of Jesus? 
We, we tend, I think, as I've, I've, as I've done some, maybe, maybe this is like you, I, I find that I tend to, to live, to experience the world around me, to treat one another, to treat others, to interpret my circumstances. I tend to speak all of those things. I tend to do all of those things as though the return of our Lord and Master is not ever going to happen. It's just not a potentiality that I have to face or reckon with in my life. That's my default. That's where, that's where I gravitate to when I'm living according to Ryan in the flesh. I wonder if that's the case for you as well. But friends, James is teaching not only that the return of Christ is near, it's imminent, it's coming soon, but that we ought to become certain kinds of people in light of it. This teaching ought to impact us, ought to change us, ought to do something to us. It ought to make us into certain kinds of people in light of it. And James sees, I, I think here, four particular qualities that are supposed to be formed in us as we wait expectantly for the return of Jesus. Here's those four qualities. I'm going to just list them for you and then we'll walk through them together. Okay? First, steadiness. Second, renewal. Third, honor. And fourth, integrity or character. We'll talk about that then. Steadiness, renewal, honor, integrity. We as a people ought to be increasingly marked by these four qualities as we wait for the return of our King and Lord and Master. First, steadiness. Uh, Since the return of our Master is near, we ought to therefore be increasingly marked by a kind of unusual, even otherworldly steadiness. Steadiness. Look look beginning at verse 7 with me. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Now remember the context here. Increasing marginalization by the society. They feel exploited and persecuted by the rich and the powerful, unbelieving world around them. I don't think our situation is nearly as bad as theirs, but let's try to, with our imagination, get our, get our feet in their shoes. For these Christians, they're facing a world that's still broken, facing all kinds of injustice that, it, that feels very oppressive, The temptation for them was to give up. To give up. This Jesus stuff isn't working. Life hasn't gotten any easier for me as I'm following Jesus. Actually, it's gotten more difficult for me as I'm following Jesus. For these Christians, the pressure was on. God, through the inspired writing of James, the brother of the risen Lord, is calling them to be patient 2,000 years later, as we read this text, did you know that God right now, if you are following Jesus, is calling you and is 
is, is, is bidding you to be patient as well. So much of the Christian life I'm finding is learning how to be patient. The older I get, the more I feel like, like faith is bound up with, it, 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 it looks like patience in the face of unresolved difficulties, challenging, breathtaking suffering. I mean, that's what faith often looks like for us in this world. It looks like patience, the cultivation of patience. Did you know that patience is one of the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5 that comes through faith in the gospel? This is something that God wants to work in us as we trust in his son. James uses the analogy of a farmer waiting for the harvest. He's waiting, this, this farmer is waiting for a harvest. What is the harvest, right? You think about this. Why does he use this analogy? The, the, the farmer is waiting for a harvest because a harvest is something that is completely out of the farmer's control. Something that, that he depends on not only for his life. And this is interesting, right? I mean, this is what he's using an analogy where James is saying, look at the farmer. He He's doing all this work, but ultimately he is absolutely dependent on God to provide something for him that's not just like an extra benefit for his life, like I'm, I'm, I'm totally, I'm like waiting for to strike the lottery or something, like I'm, it's, it's just gonna be a totally lucky thing if it happened. No, this, his livelihood depended. The farmer needed God to come through every year over and over again to provide the precious fruit of the harvest. His life depended on it. His family's lives depended on it. And so James points us to the farmer. The farmer waits. He waits for something to happen. He waits for God to provide. He waits for God to give what James calls, as I said, the precious fruit, this precious fruit. This is the way God set up the world in wisdom. We see examples of this, not just in farming, but all over the place, don't we? The dignity and the necessity of patience, it's built into the fabric of human experience. The farmer waits for the harvest. The, the fisherman waits for the catch. The, the, bid, the businessman waits for the sell. What, I wonder what it is in your line of work. Where is patience absolutely required in your profession, in your calling in life? Well, God's teaching us something through even the way he set things up in the world. Nations are gonna rise and fall. Economic upheaval will take place. Not if, but will. And it's, a, it's a win word. Poverty and famine will come. Earthquakes will shake the earth. Volcanoes will erupt. Tornadoes will destroy. Rains will flood the land. Persecutions will come. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, Jesus says, but James, his brother, says to us, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Friends, if you're in Christ, God is creating in you a steadiness. You don't get too high, 
by the successes in life, and you don't get too low by the affliction and the suffering. God is creating a steadiness in us, and it's painful sometimes, isn't it? I happen to think it's not only painful, but it's also beautiful. Uh, when I go on walks up and down my driveway at my house, I've learned that I, need to, I needed to give my dog a command. Brody, my yellow lab, can only come halfway up the driveway. And so every time I go on these walks, when it comes to the halfway point, he knows to drop his bum on the ground and sit. And no matter how far I go, whether it's just to the end of the driveway or down the road, my dog knows to sit, and he's, his gaze is directed toward me. And he waits, he waits, he waits. He doesn't move until I come back, till his master comes back and greets him. And you know what? I've never seen my dog look more beautiful, look more regal, look more dignified than the five minutes of his entire day that he's actually being obedient to me. He knows he can't go across that line. Now I've painted my, the a portrait of my dog that he sounds much more obedient than he actually is. But seriously, he does know he can't go across that line and he waits. And there's something, there's something wonderful about it. There's, like, there's, a, there's a glimpse into the, this little dog's created dignity that, uh, that I think is just a whisper of something wonderful about what God's calling us into. Friends, waiting for my, for my dog, Brody, is not a passive activity. The entire time, his attention is on me. His gaze is in my direction, even if I'm too far away for him to see. He's still looking, looking, looking. When I get closer, his tail starts to wag, and his bum starts to wiggle. Now, Jesus has not returned for 2,000 years Maybe this generation he will. Maybe not. But let me tell you this. There is a dignity and there is an honor and something uniquely compelling about generation, think about this, for the last 2,000 years, generation after generation of followers of Jesus waiting, patient, looking, focused, even dying in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and greeted them. Isn't this the kind of person you want to become? James says in verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Like the prophets of old who spoke in the name of the Lord or maybe your heroes in the, in the Christian faith. Maybe that's Jim Elliot. Maybe that's Augustine. Maybe it's your grandma or grandpa who died trusting in the Lord. Don't we consider them blessed? Who persevered under trial? Who did not revile when they were reviled? Who did not retaliate when they were persecuted? Who did not shake their fist at heaven? when everything was taken from them? Who, who is that? Is it, is it a hero from the pages of Scripture? Is it someone in your life? Is it someone from Christian history? Don't, isn't there something that is just 
man, there's something about that. I want to be that. You feel called up into something that's bigger and greater than yourself. As you see their example of patience. Friend, be patient until the coming of the Lord. One of my uh, more pronounced memories of my childhood is, is this memory of sitting um, in, the, in the front room in my grandma's house off of Military Road in South Hill waiting um, for my, uh, my mom, but quite often on those weekends that uh, it was a Friday night waiting for my dad to come get me so that we could go spend the weekend with dad. And I remember sitting on this on this blue couch, on my knees with my, my hands over it, and it's getting, it must be in wintertime because it was dark early, and I'm sitting there looking at headlights fly by on Military Road, and I'm just waiting to hear the sound of a, a, a truck's tires that go from, from pavement to a gravel driveway, and I see two headlights turning in the driveway. I'll tell you what, there were times that I got tired, <laughs> There were times that I got discouraged that dad was picking me up so late because work went late. But I never stopped looking. I never stopped waiting. Now, before I pat myself on the back for this muscle man virtue of, of patience that I exhibited as a kid, there was no virtue in it for me. Do you know, do you know why I was able to exert such patience when I, was a, when I was a kid waiting for my father to arrive or waiting for my mother to arrive at my grandma's house. It wasn't because I thought there was something intrinsically valuable or meritorious about patience in and of itself. It's because I preferred the presence of my father. I was longing for it. I wanted to be with him. I, I wanted him to come and take me from where I was, though I loved grandma's house, don't get me wrong, all kinds of snacks, and take me to be with him, right? It's, so it wasn't just because it was some, some ethical ideal that we ought to become more patient people. If we prefer the presence of our coming Lord and Master, patience will be the byproduct of that for us. We will inevitably become a patient, a, a steady people. When life is hard and injustice seems to win the day, call to mind, friends, the return of the Son of God and fix your gaze on Him. Be anchored to it. Don't be blown about, as James says earlier, by the winds and the waves, whether it be of injustice, systematic justice, oppressive big-time out-there injustice, or specific pointed, searing injustice that you've experienced in your life. Don't be blown away by those things. Fix your gaze on the return of the Son of God. It might be easier to drift with the winds and the waves. I mean, this is a very obvious observation, isn't it? I mean, you think about a boat who is untethered to a dock, unanchored, and they just drift around, right? But what's going to happen to that boat? It's going to crash into the rocks at some point. But there, it, you, if, have you ever slept in a boat that's drifting away? You don't even realize that you're drifting. It just, you just go along with the current and with the wind. You don't feel how strong the pressure of those things are. But when you're anchored to something, you feel the wind and you feel the waves. Be patient. 
we will feel the strength of the currents and the winds of this age if we are anchored. But we'll also be ready to receive the precious fruit that only the Lord comes to bestow. Let me ask you a question. It's just the two of us here, right? So just, just between you and I, where is the Lord, where in your life is the Lord calling you to exercise faith-filled, right now, patience? What area of your life do you, are you tempted to just quit in? Rather than like that dog, wait and just look in the direction of your Lord and Master to come. Is it a big decision that you have to make in your life? Is it a relationship? Is it a financial thing? Is it a social thing? You're standing in the community? Where is God asking you right now to not wait until the circumstances are changed, but wait until the coming of the Lord? Just wait. God is making you a person marked by unusual steadiness. Second, God's making us a people marked by renewal. Renewal. Look at verse 8 with me. You also, James says, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Okay, here's what I see, friends. Christianity is not stoicism. You know what Stoicism is? Stoic philosophy. Christianity is not merely in the head. Christianity is not merely doctrinal. Christianity is not merely cerebral. Christianity is experiential. It's supernatural. Christianity is not form or tradition or religion. It's power. It's, it's the head, but it's also the heart. Christianity is not merely news or information about Jesus. It is experiencing right now the reality of the Holy Spirit through the news about Jesus. See how they both come together? Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. God is wanting to renew in you a felt sense of strength and solidity and soul rest while you wait. In the waiting, while you're patient, God is wanting to do a strengthening work inside of you. This is God's will from your life. I can say that because we're looking at the text together. This is God's will for your life before your circumstances have changed. Ryan, (laughs) telling myself this, what did the prophet Isaiah say to a people who their circumstances had not changed yet? What did he say to them? He said, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by God? Where's God at? Have you not known Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, 
when you don't want to be patient, when you don't want to wait any longer, it, he, he, to the one who has no might, he increases strength. Even the best of us, right? Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and be able to endure, not be weary. Unusual steadiness, unusual renewed strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This is Christianity. This is Christianity. When you feel like you are past the point of quitting, God is able to pour out from the Holy Spirit power from on high, power in secret, power to wait, power to hope, power to enjoy the presence of God through the promises of God, even with the gathered people of God. There is good news for the faint-hearted, if that's you today. And in 10 years from now, or in five years from now, if that's not new, you now, and that's gonna be you then, God is wanting you to decide right now in your hearts to wait on Him, to trust in Him. God's power is not delayed through your weakness. It's made known in your weakness. Now, implied in this verse is indeed the promise of renewal, which I've just tried to declare to you with the best of my ability. There is this implicit promise of renewal, this, this expectation that in your waiting you can be renewed in strength of heart. That's good news. But straightforwardly, this is not a promise. It is a command as well. Isn't that interesting? What does he say? Establish your heart. Strengthen your heart. Stand firm, as some translations put it. This is, there's an active component here. This is not just wait for this to happen to you, but there's something here for you to do, Christian. This is part of what it means to be a servant of the master who's gone away on a long journey. He's, he's given you all that belongs to him to look over, to guard, to protect, and even to steward. So let me ask you, Christian, God has put into your possession knowledge of the gospel of God's grace. What have you done with it? He has disclosed to you the revelation, the knowledge of his beloved son. What will you do with this most precious possession? Will you use it for the strengthening of your heart? Or will you, what, dismiss it? Let it collect dust? But friend, He has given you His Word, the, the Bible, filled with great and precious promises. Have you poured over them? Have you stopped? Did you used to, but now you've stopped pouring over this book? Have you hidden this book in your heart? He, friends, what else has, he, has the master entrusted you with? He has given you his ear. 
He has promised that he will listen to you and give to you whatever you ask in the name of Jesus. Have you cried out to him? Have you stopped crying out to him? Do you ask and seek and knock for more of what is yours, what what belongs to you in Jesus Christ? Friends, God has given you the church, his son's own body. And more than the, the broader universal church, he has given to you, if you are here, this church. What will you do with this community? God is calling you to use it and to steward what belongs to him for your strengthening. Pick it up. Use it. Employ it. I've never been a farmer. Everyone's like, yeah, I know. It's obvious, Ryan. I've never been a farmer personally. I don't even like weeding like like a flower garden, okay? But I would imagine that waiting for the harvest is not an entirely active or uh, not entirely passive activity. We talk about the farmer waiting for the, the rains to come. That's after a lot of hard work by the farmer. Is that fair to say? I mean, any, can I get any nods? Like a lot of hard work involved in farming, not only to prepare for it, but then even in the waiting, while you're waiting, do, does the farmer just sit back and do nothing? No, I think there's a lot to do. I, I just, I mean, I'm gonna miss a lot here, but I would imagine that the farmer does a lot while he's waiting for the rains to come and for the harvest to come. The farmer builds fences around his crops to guard it. He, he fertilizes it, he waters it, he pulls weeds out that inevitably grow in its midst or in the midst of it. He builds barns to store the precious fruit in the expectation that it's actually going to come or whatever storehouses or whatever. You see, you see though what I'm saying? He's active. This, this waiting thing is, a, is an active thing. He waits, but there's work to be done while he waits. Establish your hearts. Right now, strengthen your hearts. King David wrote in Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Son of God. That's number two. Okay? Third, honor. God is making us a people not only marked by steadiness and by continual renewal, ongoing renewal, but also honor. Verse nine reads, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. I think this is incredibly interesting uh, for James to bring up here. Sometimes you look and you think, ah, why does that go there? Why, why did he say this right now and not maybe back in chapter four when he's talking about not speaking evil against one another? But he brings it up right here. Again, this is really interesting. So it's interesting to me because you would think he would say something like they're, they're, they're experiencing being exploited and pressured by the rich, of, the rich and unbelieving of the world. So you'd think he'd say, brothers and sisters, don't grumble maybe against the rich. Don't grumble against maybe those unbelievers who are persecuting you. Wouldn't, that would make sense, right? Or, or you think he'd say, don't grumble against God. You don't want to do that, right? Because God's the one who's sovereign over your circumstances. 
But he doesn't say that. Do you know what he says here as they're facing pressure from without? He says, don't grumble against one another. Why? It's really interesting to me. Why does he do that? When the people of Israel were rescued from slavery in Egypt but had not yet experienced rescue into the promised land, they grumbled against their leaders. Apparently when we face difficult circumstances, there is a real and present tendency for what James calls back in chapter 3, bitter jealousy to rise up in our midst, disorder, maybe offense being taken, In chapter four, he describes this stuff that can crop up here as quarrels and fights that can break out among you. Who doesn't know of this kind of a a story of this kind of a thing taking place in a church? There can be all kinds of friendly fire that happens and it's actually, it's not a laughing matter. It's really tragic when it happens and uh, it, it can be quite traumatic to experience or this place where you're expecting to experience life to to experience the opposite when the lord jesus returns he is going to bring judgment on a world that has rejected him but he'll also return to judge how he how we have treated his servants how we have treated his body how we have treated the church how we have treated one another do not grumble against one another. Do you guys remember the story of David, King David? Before he was king, before David was waiting to be made king, um, he had every reason in the world to take a shot at King Saul. And King Saul was this, you know, at first this seemingly awesome king, but he had all kinds of flaws. And particularly, he didn't want David to become king. He was jealous. And David saw all kinds of flaws and probably could have very easily said something or done something that would have undermined Saul's authority. But David knew in his mind that for the time being, Saul is the Lord's anointed. And he would say things like, far be it from me to touch the Lord's anointed. So there you have it. You have a, you have a, a, a leader or you have a brother of, in the kingdom who's got all these flaws. But there is a holy reverence. There is a decision that David clearly made in his heart to honor rather than grumble against Saul. Saul was the Lord's anointed in one sense, right? But in another sense, we know that ultimately he wasn't the Lord's anointed. Even David was only a shadow of the coming Christ, the Lord's anointed. And what the New Testament teaches, friends, is that Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is the the quintessential Lord's anointed par excellence. But he also, the New Testament also teaches this, that if you're in Christ, if your brother or sister is in Christ, they are also the Lord's anointed. So there ought to be this holy reverence with the way we treat one another rather than grumbling against one another. We honor one another. We appreciate one another. In fact, Paul says we ought to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, just to be clear, this doesn't mean we, we don't report crimes when they happen inside the church. 
It doesn't mean we don't hold people and pastors accountable for aggressive, flagrant sin, unrepentant sin. This doesn't mean we don't talk to people in gentleness and grace, maybe when they sin against us. It does mean that we don't talk about them when they sin against us, when they're weaker than us, when they're flawed in some maybe obvious ways. Friends, the master of the house is returning soon and he will put every wrong to right and he will hold you and me accountable for the way we have treated one another. Dare not grumble against one another, the Lord's anointed. Rather, be slow to speak, as James says earlier, quick to listen. Rather than grumbling and complaining, God is calling us right now to decide in our hearts to be the source of praise and appreciation and enjoyment, the kind of speech that's honoring of one another. The judge is standing at the door. James says, judge not lest you be judged. Okay, we need to receive that. I'm not prone to say something like this. Isn't this wonderful? This is why we, we preach God's word because I, I didn't have a hankering to come in here and you know, warn you and rebuke you if that was needed. I don't know if it was needed. I don't know of anyone doing this, grumbling here. But this is what, this is what God would have us hear from his word today. Fourth, God's making us a people increasingly marked by steadiness, ongoing renewal, Honor, and finally, integrity. Look at verse 12 with me. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. As life became harder for Christians in the Jewish context that James is writing into, it became increasingly common in the culture they lived in to start twisting their words, to get out of difficult situations, but what James is saying here, he's, he's merely, does this sound familiar, right? He's merely echoing what the Lord Jesus himself taught in a section of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew 5 where Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to, the, uh, to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Sounds familiar, right? This is what James is saying. He's echoing this here, and he feels like this community needs to hear this. God's calling us to be a people of integrity, to be a people of honor. Apparently it was common to find something to swear on that was basically the equivalent. Have you ever done this when you were kids? Like say something to someone but cross your fingers behind your back and you knew in your mind that gave you the out. You could say one thing, do the other, but for some reason the fingers crossed behind your back gets you off on that one. Like I don't know who came up with that, but that's basically what these Christians were doing. They knew that they could say something. If I swear on this hill or on my family, on that part of my family I don't like maybe, or you know, on, on this place that I don't care about, then I can get out of this contract or I can get out of this obligation of mine. If you have to say uh, seriously, 
if you have to preface everything you say with the word seriously or honestly or I swear, just for someone to believe what you're saying, you may need to consider whether your speech is marked by integrity and honor and character. Proverbs 10.9 says, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Let me ask you when, you, when you sign your name on a contract, do you intend to keep it? Or are you living in the, 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 the spirit of this age where you're immediately looking for loopholes or ways to get out from underneath what you have put your name on? When you tell someone that you'll do something, do you do it? According to James, there is a way to feel so much pressure from the challenging situations we're in that we begin to bend our speech, not follow through on our commitments, speak out of both sides of our mouth. And then when our master returns, we inevitably fall under a kind of judging, disciplining condemnation. So God, God is calling us to integrity. God's calling us to a kind of countercultural, from the spirit character. Okay, we want that. We want to be marked by this, this wisdom, this character. But can I just, um, this is hard, right? Ryan, these are a lot of exhortations. <laughs> Who's sufficient for these things? Don't we rightly say with, with Isaiah, at the thought of our master's coming, we, we know we, we've not been as, as steady. We know we've thrown in the towel and not been patient more times than we've ever been asked. We, we know right now there is like there I feel there's just like a hanging low of our a collective hanging of our heads as I'm talking more and more about the character that God is calling us to the 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 way we have to speak well of one another like we we say with Isaiah what woe is me for I am lost I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips right just joking So we ask, how, how, how will I, a lowly servant, withstand the judgment of an all-seeing master? How do, how, how do I remember the coming of the Lord as my judge and have it motivate patience and renewal and, 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 and speech that, that, that honors people and that, that does what it says it's gonna do rather than, rather than just having me like, be paralyzed and crippled in fear at his coming? There's no way I can do in my own strength all those things. I, I, <laughs> I give up at the first symptom of weakness quite often. Well, friends, there's good news for us. And there's good news not just in the gospel, but there's good news even in this passage here. Verse 11. Where does James point us? You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. <clears throat> There's a modern day hymn that I'm, I love. I think it's been around for like three, three to five years, something like that, maybe longer, but I've just recently come across it and I'm loving it. Uh, our sins are many, but His mercy is more. Our sinning is as much and many. But friends, even as we face him and his return, his mercy is more. Do you remember Job? 
Do you remember what happened with Job when, when Job, when, when the Lord showed up, when the Lord returned, so to speak, and encountered Job and spoke to Job and gave an assessment of Job to Job? Do you remember what happened to Job? Yes, God came in judgment to Job, but what was the result of that? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Even, and this is, this is the way God is, even in his promise to return and judge, there is, it will be for you, Christian, if you, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted him, it will be for you, as severe and honest as it is, it will be for you a deeper and wider experience of God's mercy and grace than you could ever ask or imagine. Just like Job, all that you've lost in your life and tenfold will be restored to you. It will be not merely an experience of all-seeing, discerning justice, but more than that. And somehow, in that, it will be an experience of restoration, the likes of which you could never imagine. That is what it will be like when the Lord Jesus returns. He will speak words that may hurt but they will not harm you. They will be wounds, but they will heal you. That's the kind of God he is. I can't do that. When I try to hold someone accountable or render judgment, it only ends up harming them, doesn't it? We stink at this. God is perfect at this. As, God, as, as Job meets God face to face with God, he experiences something about God that he had never even tasted before. Before it was, his whole life, it was like he had only ever heard of Job, with his, heard of God with his ears, but now it was like seeing and beholding the glory and the mercy and the majesty of God with his eyes. It was for Job an absolute experience of God's compassion and mercy. He deserved to be consumed, but instead he was restored. Friends, that is what that is what undeserving sinners get in the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus. That's what you get now. That is what you will get then when you meet him face to face. Amen? So God's calling us. We want to fix our hope on him. Worship team, come on up. I'll close by praying and then we'll, we'll sing about this. There's no, there's no way we can do this on our own. But through Christ, he is making us into these kinds of people. Father, thank you for your son. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the grace and compassion of the Lord Jesus that we have tasted now in the gospel and that ultimately we will taste again when he appears, when the skies split and roll up like a scroll and the Son of Man descends from heaven to gather his church from the four corners of the world and gather to himself all those who have longed for his appearing. Father, Lord, would you help us to fix our eyes on him and make us a steady people. Lord, make us make us a renewed people. Make us an honoring people. And Father, finally, make us a people of character. In Jesus' name, amen.